New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In the foreword to Ralph White's memoir, Thomas More advises us to make extravagant decisions in favor of adventure. And that's exactly what Ralph White has done throughout his life's journey. In his worldwide travels, White has witnessed firsthand many of the places where enormous cultural shifts have happened. His lifelong yearning for insight into the deepest spiritual truths of our human existence has taken him from northern Scotland and the Fendhorn community to the wilds of eastern Tibet and beyond. Today we'll be exploring the fascinating travels and insights with our guest, Ralph White. Ralph White is co-founder of the New York Open Center, America's leading urban center of holistic learning. He was a former editor of the award-winning Lapis Magazine. Born in Wales, he now resides in New York City. His current activities include the Esoteric Quest series of conferences in Europe that focus on the lost spiritual history of the West. He also presents the Art of Dying conferences. He's the author of the memoir, The Jeweled Highway, On the Quest for a Life of Meaning. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we too may lead a life of meaning and spiritual fulfillment with our guest, Ralph White. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Ralph, welcome. Thank you, Justine. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I'd like to help our listeners know a little bit of (laughs) your journey before we get to the the, the Open Center, mm-hmm. which many of our listeners know of mm-hmm. in New York mm-hmm. City. Right. Uh, but before we get to that, I want you to talk a little bit about your journey. And you started off as a young boy mm-hmm. on the coast of Wales. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you moved to a more urban setting. Yes. So can you describe those two places? Yes. Well, I did spend most of my childhood on the Irish Sea on the North Wales coast a little town called Penryn Bay near Llandidno. And uh, that was a very beautiful experience, actually, as I describe in the book. It's, uh, I try to evoke that there was a sense of eternity there, the crashing of the, the waves of the sea, the mountains of Snowdonia, 
visible through the kitchen window, the cry of the seagulls, the steady rhythm of the crash, and the, the sense of expansiveness and peace that there was in that very beautiful part of the world. Uh, but then at nine, as my father had a change in his job, uh, we, we went to another extreme. And uh, I found myself at the age of nine gazing down on a very, I think it's fair to say, a fairly grim industrial landscape. We moved to a town called Huddersfield. Some of our read, uh, some of our listeners may remember Harold Wilson, the British Prime Minister of the 60s. He was from Huddersfield, a northern industrial town, uh, soot-covered, the, the world's original working class. That's where around there that the Industrial Revolution began. The Luddites came from that part of the world. So that was a real immersion in chimneys and smoke and mills and the sense of uh, generations of working people with dead-end lives. So that was a very radical transition for me. And so even though I had always been a, a boy with questions, you know, I wanted to know what we were here. What are we here for? What is the point of human existence? And uh, I'm sure I didn't phrase it exactly that way when I was nine years old. But I did want to know what life was about. And the conventional answer that it's just, you know, you get married and you get a job, you know, maybe you have kids, you die. It never seemed enough. So I was always a questing child. And I think that um, moving to that uh, rather dire industrial environment, if anything, it accentuated the, uh, the questions in me. I'm wondering where... Where does that question come from? As not all children are thinking mm. about those deep questions about what's it all about, <laughs> Alfie, so to speak. You know, what's it all about? Yeah. Uh, where do you suppose that came from? Well, if you take a, you, of course, some people would take the view of uh, that this isn't our first incarnation. And that as a being, as a soul, in some way, it clearly just lived inside of me. So whether you take the view that there is uh, the experience of reincarnation and I came into this world having with a feeling, uh, perhaps having explored some of these issues or questions in a previous lifetime, or whether it's just something in my inherent nature, I lean towards the former explanation. It makes more sense to me in my studies of the mm -hmm. human condition. Um, but I wouldn't want to be uh, dogmatic about it. So I think this is one of those questions for people to live with. I think it's by engaging with that sort of question that we actually can come to some kind of answers. And, of course, it led me to a more esoteric worldview. Mm -hmm. And when you were in Huddersfield, mm -hmm. what got you through? You're, you're coming <laughs> to your teenage years, yeah. and the beauty of the place is kind of not extant it's not no, there and no. and uh people are mill workers and they're yeah, punching clocks yeah. and stuff and uh, so what got you through? Well, I would say it was two things. You know, there there is a certain, the, the moors, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners have read the Brontes, you know, Wuthering Heights. They'll think of those moors coming down and those dark mists and fogs. But when it clears, there's a beauty. We, there, there it is kind of big sky country up there. It's a little bit like Montana in a way mm -hmm. on a smaller scale. Um, so that was one thing. There's this, there was a certain spaciousness, even though the town below was grim and grimy. But the other thing that really got me through my adolescence was the Beatles <laughs> and rock and roll because, you know, I was 14 when the Beatles burst onto the scene. And I, it's in the book. I can still remember that very moment coming out of running a cross-country race and these icy 
mountains and Cone Valley and coming out of the shower and there was a little old radio. Remember those little two-inch square transistor radios that was hanging on a hook in the changing room and I heard the opening harmonica lines of Love Me Do by the Beatles and something in me went, wow, what is that? Something I'd never heard before. So, of course, they were from 80 miles down the road in Liverpool but it was that explosion of music, you know, the Mersey beat uh, even before the Beatles came to the States and so on. Though it was that sheer surge of vitality, love of life, um, just the life-affirming quality uh-huh. in the music. Uh-huh. So it was the Beatles, the Stones, the Animals, and of course, as I say in the book, my, my uh, <laughs> guiding refrain in those years were, uh, were the lines, we got to get out of this place. You know, if it's the last thing we ever do. We got to get out of this place. Girl, there's a better life for me and you. So old Eric Burden and the animals singing that, that was kind of my watchword. So mm-hmm. it was those two things. There, there was a quiet beauty in the natural surroundings, but it was the music. Music. Yeah. And Ralph, when you finally went on to what we call here at college, our university, mm. You didn't choose the Cambridge, um, uh, Oxford way of that kind of strict rationalism and kind of stuffy. You chose something else. So so describe the alternative school that you went to. Yeah, well, it was called the the University of Sussex. Um, Very few Americans are, are aware of this part of history, but it was the academic counterpart of swinging London, really. It was intended to break the stranglehold of Oxford and Cambridge on some of the more gifted people supposedly gifted people in um, in the UK at the time but uh, so it was my you Today, I would say it had a more holistic approach to learning in the sense that most British education you focused on whatever it was, you know, geography or physics or math. It was very compartmentalized. All day, every day. was This had a sense of contextuals. You looked at a broader context as well as the topic that you were majoring in. And uh, I chose to major in uh, American studies, which was a very rare thing at that time. So it was, yes, it was a more comprehensive and holistic approach to learning, but it was just a very vital time. You know, the Mm -hmm. little mini skirts, Jimi Hendrix playing at the student union, you know, Fleetwood Mac down at the local pub for 75 pence a a night or some minimal cover fee. So it was a very vital, alive time. And yeah, that was a liberation for me after coming from the the, the northern industrial world. Now, American studies, that was an interesting (laughs) choice, which also then led you mm-hmm. to to come to the U.S. Yeah. And um, you tell just a wonderful story about um, coming to the U.S. on a, on a cheap flight. And, <laughs> and, and, and when you arrive in New York, it's after midnight and your bags didn't show up. So it, give us a little flavor of... <laughs> of first putting your foot on the the U.S. soil. Well, it was yes. I mean, I'd never been on an airplane before. I was uh, 21 <laughs> years old. My first flight was to fly across the Atlantic. Um, and yes, as you were saying, I I landed, and of course, like, there I am at the carousel, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and I only have one thing. That's this one suitcase, and it completely fails to show up. By the time I get through trying to find it registering with all the different agencies, et cetera. And I got out onto this 
the the hot, humid night at JFK Airport, suddenly I step out, and this was my first taste of America, I was deluged with cab drivers. There must have been 50, 20 guys all coming at me. They saw a fare, and they were all shouting different uh, fees and arrangements. Um, the bus that should have taken us all who'd been on the charter flight had long gone. And so suddenly I was immersed in a world of endless choices. I didn't know who was hustling, who was a scam artist. It was New York. This is 1970, so it was was not a good time to be in New York in terms of crime. So there was a sense of (laughs) chaos, Um, not knowing who to trust. Were you afraid? Did you feel it was was fear? I was anxious. anxious, I was definitely anxious. And then, you know, you jumped in the cabin. It was careering down the rutted highway. (laughs) You know, everything in Britain was much more orderly with meters. These guys were just all offering you different deals. You didn't really know how far it was or how much it should cost. Now, I think it's improved since then. Oh, yeah. At that time, time it was was chaotic. And then by the time we got to the hotel, they they thought I wasn't coming. They'd given the room away. So I wound up walking the streets of Manhattan at three, four in the morning. Fortunately, there was a helpful friend, Texan guy who was in the same boat. But of course, it was, the, you know, the the steam coming up yes. from the streets. You know, the concern at that time, was there a mugger around any street corner? You, you didn't want to be a complete naive in terms of America and find yourself in that kind of situation. But that's how I, I arrived. That's and, how you arrived. <laughs> and luckily, uh, then then you, you moved on from New York to your next destination, Chicago. which was Chicago, Chicago yeah. the heart of the Midwest, so to yeah, speak. Yeah. So your experience of Chicago, because it wasn't that long after the Democratic Convention in '68, Mayor Daley was still ruling the roost. Because Vietnam was still raging, I was teaching at the, the university. I had uh, students who had just come back from Vietnam, a lot of them, or other students who were seeking desperately to maintain their grades so they wouldn't be drafted. So we, we're going to talk yeah. more about that in just yeah. one moment. I just want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Ralph White. He's the author of the memoir, The Jeweled Highway, On the Quest for a Life of Meaning. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, ralphwhite.net, ralphwhite.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Stoms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Ralph White. He is the co-founder of the Open Center in New York City, and he's also the author of the memoir, The Jeweled Highway, On the Quest for a Life of Meaning. 
Ralph, we're talking about you're arriving in, in New York. You're, I mean, in Chicago now, and you are like 21 years old. You're teaching. You're going to teach some courses there in Chicago. And that was an, a kind of immersion in it of was. itself. Absolutely, yes. It wasn't so much the academic life in Chicago, it was the immersion in city life. You know, I had to get streetwise very quickly. You know, Chicago at that time, I think it probably still is, was a, a collection of ethnic city-states in many ways. I lived in the near north side of Chicago with, with the young lords, you know, a, a progressive Puerto Rican, well, a, a radical Puerto Rican group that uh, concerned with social justice. The Black Panthers were very much in evidence. There were the student union, you know, You'd see the guys from the um, that realm with the conga drums, etc. So it was very, it was vibrant. It was alive, but Vietnam was still raging. So there was a, tr a huge sense of tension in the city between the supporters of Mayor Daley, of course, who had been stirred up to have negative feelings towards the anti-war activists, etc., and the so-called hippies. And <laughs> so it was an absolutely fascinating time to be there. So I just immersed myself. I, it, it wasn't about study at the mm -hmm. university. It was actually mm -hmm. living mm -hmm. the life and feeling America in the raw, which is what I wanted to do after studying it in England. And then you had your first <laughs> big mystical experience. Yes. That 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 I guess that first Christmas you yeah. drove with someone you mm -hmm. signed on mm -hmm. to be a, a, a fellow driver <laughs> to go. So say yes. Say, well, say I answered you because know, at that time, the cusp of the sixties and seventies, uh, everybody wanted to go to California, including me. So I saw an ad at the university for a co-driver to LA and I answered the ad and it turned out that it'd been uh, somebody had been trying to find a co-driver for months everything had fallen through she met and we clicked just like that and we set off down route 66 and of course the first side the first track of the first album by the Rolling Stones was <laughs> route 66 so if you ever plan to motor west Taxi my way, take the highway that's the best, get your kicks on Route 66. So we did, big time, roaring down that, uh, that highway. And of course, the first real novel of American literature I had read was The Grapes of Wrath by mm -hmm. John Steinbeck, which is about those Okies heading down Route 66 to California as well. So that turned into a spiritual experience for me. The debt just to get to the deserts of New Mexico and Arizona, the vast stars above, the silence. I had never heard the pure sound of silence before until I was at some 14th century Native American ruins on, in the painted desert. Just the scale of the landscape. Uh, I felt like my mind expanded uh, in consort with the scope of the landscape. Uh, also, all the way down that uh, road, you know, my sweet Lord was playing with George. Oh. And when we got down to Tucson, which we stopped at, um, All Things Must Pass just came out. So for me, I was 21 years old. Some traditions would say there's a certain spiritual opening that can happen at that time. So it was the landscape. It was the freedom. It was the ultimate road trip. It was the deserts. It was the stars. And I think it was something in me waiting to emerge. But I began to have a whole series of deep uh, nature-based mystical experiences down there. And from that point on, my life was never really the same. I would say that I wasn't really engaged very much with the academic study at university. Uh, I was more there to see the life and see America. But this opened up a whole new uh, set of insights. I realized that some of my own negativity had come from closing myself off in a self-protective way. And that the more I opened to the world, the more the world was filled with beauty and wonder. 
Um, and so, you know, when I got back to Chicago and to finish my responsibilities there, it was one of those things where books would, if they didn't literally fall off the shelf, they'd be sticking out, you know, four <laughs> inches off the shelf. Uh, Radha Krishna's great book on Eastern religions and Western philosophy. I remember reading the first 40 or 50 pages of that, and it just spoke exactly to the kind of experiences I'd been having in the desert. So then I realized I, I was having these profound experiences. And if they were real, then nothing could be more important because all my conventional training, my intellectual predisposition was towards, no, this is nonsense, this is an illusion. But it, I, just, I made the decision to follow my heart and say, I must investigate if this is real because if it is, nothing could be more significant. Well, and that's then what led me, once I'd finished my contract in Chicago, then I, I went to Vancouver um, because I wanted to be on the West Coast. I enjoyed the counterculture there, the sense of spiritual exploration. So yeah. uh, that's why I went to Vancouver. I loved the West Coast. And people had told me it was beautiful there, but I didn't know a soul in the country. And I arrived with $140 <laughs> intent upon you know exploring these truths. But my lifeline in that was that just round the corner from where I was living was a tiny little hole in the wall, literally one room, and it was called Banyan Books. I know it well. <laughs> and I now know you know well. I'm, I'm going to be speaking yeah. up there in a couple oh, of weeks' great. time. We'll send them our regards. And it's so sweet. Talk about a karmic yeah. turn of the wheel because that little place when I was going through such questioning and wondering and it, and it was lonely, you know, I felt I should write about this in the book that I saw that people didn't, don't feel it was just a breeze. There were dark times. There were lonely times, depressed times, anxious, wondering to be sitting on the logs in Catsalano Beach in Vancouver, looking at the lights of the freighters bobbing in the bay, wondering where the next meal was coming from, you know, trying to sell Canada's first ecology magazine door to door. Making, you're, making you're, a quarter on each right. one. Your door-to-door -door <laughs> salesman of the magazine yeah. is amazing. <laughs> but um, but that Banyan books, you know, you could go yeah. in there and you could... It was, it was like an oasis. Oh, it was an oasis. You could sit there all afternoon and read because I couldn't afford to buy books. Mm -hmm. The air was laced with perfume. There were holy men all around the walls. And I could just read for hour after hour after hour. And it just seemed at that time help came my way. The apartment that I moved in, there was a novel by Doris Lang the four-gated city that had just been left by the previous occupant on the kitchen sink. And I read that, and of course, she was deeply attuned to Carl Jung, and that the four-gated city is a symbol of individuation in many ways. So it was one of those times where wherever I looked, whether it was Radha Krishna or Doris Lessing or Jung for me was hugely important at that time, modern man in search of a soul, he was able to reconcile the spiritual with the intellectual side of me through concepts like the collective unconscious right. and archetypes and so on. And it was resonating and with yeah. your experience. You're saying, hey, this is, this is what I'm going yeah, through. Yeah, exactly. Now I want to skip ahead a little bit that that you in at some point did an extraordinary adventure when I opened I talked about uh, you know choosing the adventure in your life you did you drove by land with with different people hitching rides in different ways from Vancouver Canada mm -hmm. to South America yeah. so that's going down you know okay. all of the US West Coast and going through mm -hmm. Central America mm -hmm. Mexico down into Central yeah. America and then finally ending up in South America uh, 
That's <laughs> that in itself, <laughs> you know, with practically no money in your pocket, and there you are, except your youth well, and yeah. your enthusiasm, and what? Well, you know, I uh, I did. I started hitchhiking when I was sixteen because it was my path to freedom. But um, there was a part of me that just wanted to stick out my thumb and keep on going down to the end of the road. But it was more than that. It was a spiritual quest in a way. I mean, today you would call it a vision quest. Although at the time I didn't have that concept. But I had seen a picture of Machu Picchu one night in Vancouver. And, and um, today, of course, everybody knows about Machu Picchu. But 40 odd years ago, it was like, whoa, what is that? And I just had this strong, intuitive feeling. I've got to go there. There I was, relatively educated for my age, but I didn't even know that I'd seen an Aztec and an Inca. And so I read Prescott's wonderful history of the conquest of Peru and set off to really explore a lot of the ancient cultures, the pre-Columbian cultures, both in Central America and in South America, and then finally in Machu Picchu. It took me six months to get there, and <laughs> there are many adventures along the way. But it was, it was well worth it because it was at Machu Picchu that I really experienced there are unquestionably our sacred places on the face of the earth. There may be a temple on it, there may not be. Uh, but there are certain cultures that understood that where the heavens meet the earth in a perfectly harmonious balance and the Incans clearly did. And uh, Machu Picchu for me was a wonderful, wonderful awareness of that. And that whole sojourn in the high Andes in Lake Titicaca and afterwards under those stars, spending time with the indigenous people. So then when I came down again to sea level, hitched a ride in the back of a pickup truck and got down to uh, it was a fairly small industrial city called Arequipa in southern Peru. But I remember seeing it again for the first time after months in the mountains. And it was one of those moments of complete intuitive clarity, just total knowing. I looked at Western industrial civilization and I saw immediately it was totally damaging the biosphere and the earth in so many profound and destructive ways. And it was deeply corrupting our own souls as well at the same time. And that it was absolutely essential to create some kind of an alternative to this destructive cycle that it was evident to me. And in a sense, you know, it was that moment of clarity that I, where I, I got what I came for. I didn't know what I set out for, but I arrived at an insight that, you know, that insight about the need to create an alternative today, I would say, a more holistic and ecological world and culture and society, um, that was a central learning for me. Some might call that uh, you received your life's assignment, mm, Yeah, you know, in oh. that envisioning and really seeing the need there and feeling your heart opening yeah. to respond to that need in yeah. some way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was looking for meaning and I could see a real purpose, a mission, a life's purpose, should we say. Because I didn't have that. That didn't come to me at that moment. I just saw more of the, the need to move the world in a better direction. And then, of course, it became a strategy of how do you go about doing that. But I was still, I didn't you know, I, I, I ran out of money there and wound up living in Colombia for a year in Bogota for a year, <laughs> oh which was a wild and crazy place to be when you're 24, 25 years old. But, um, yeah. Yeah, with no money and mm. just living on your wits and being yes. in this rough and tumble yeah. town, yeah. Uh, pretty much like a 
like the old West in some well, ways. You well, know, was, yeah. well, in many ways, Bogota in 1973 was it was like Dickensian London. There were there were there'd been a huge La Violencia, this huge civil war. All kinds of people had fled to the city to escape the violence in the countryside. There were abandoned children everywhere, sleeping out in doorways at eight, very cold, eight thousand feet at night. Um, there were only companions, abandoned dogs. There were literally schools of pickpockets, like Fagin and Oliver Twist. Um, so yes, it was a real immersion in uh, the injustice and poverty of uh, the developing world. And I, I, I actually describe a scene where I'm up on top. There's a magnificent statue of Christ, actually, right up Montserrat uh, above Bogota. It's, it's like the the one in above Rio, the more mm-hmm. famous one above Rio de Janeiro. I was up there at dawn in 1974, and a moment of transcendent stillness is the first light of the first ray of the new year. Uh, suddenly illuminated the sacred volcano Tolima in the far distance. And below us, the the plateau, the Sabanat Bogota, was just covered in mist. So it was a moment of cosmic harmony, should we say. But as the sun rose, the clouds burned off in this febrile, stressed, impoverished, unjust, violent city emerged underneath for me and that but in a way that was a clue to my life's work because it's how do we bring these two together how do we bring the spiritual and the the urban gritty reality together i'm here with ralph white he's the author of the memoir the jeweled highway on the quest for a life of meaning i'm justine willis toms you're listening to new dimensions I'm here with Ralph White. He's the author of the memoir, The Jeweled Highway, on the quest for a life of meaning. And Ralph, now I'm going to skip ahead again because I I want you to talk about your co-founding of the Open Center. So you've brought all this together, these travels, this... um, this vision quest as, you know, inadvertent vision quest that you've had and you've gone back to Canada, you've gone back to England, you've got, anyway, you end up in New York. You've actually, um, I, I, I'm not sure that we have time to really talk about all the work that you did with the Omega Center. Some of us really are very, very aware of Omega Center and, and that contribution. But now you end up back in New York City, Kind of like being in Bogota, <laughs> maybe, maybe not quite yeah. so wild as Bogota, but, but here you are in New York City, and you feel compelled that there is a way of having a spiritual center, a spiritual place of gathering mm-hmm. in an urban setting. So yeah. say something about that. 
Well, I had had the experience of li- I lived in that Findhorn community now in Echo Village in the north of Scotland. You know, then I was instrumental in really getting Omega Institute going in its own location. So I was pretty deeply imbued with the kind of new teachings, new perspective, new approaches to spirituality, health, well-being, organic agriculture, you know, the whole holistic and ecological way of seeing things. I was imbued with that, and I was really convinced that this is what was needed. Yeah, New York at that time was, uh, you know, it was considered the biggest and the baddest city in America. It was a, it was a watchword for, uh, or a byword for uh, mayhem and violence, and it truly and was. What year are this we would talking be, about? Uh, 1983. Mm-hmm. I left Omega then to start working on the Open Center in 83. So this is when, you know, the, the whole cycle of murders and violence, et cetera, is going through the roof. So the conventional wisdom at the time was it'll never work here. This is New York. This is the real world. Maybe California, but come on, get out of here. If New York needed one, it would already have one. <laughs> and uh, so that was maybe the prevailing assumption. And for our younger readers, they won't remember the days when natural foods were just little tiny holes in the wall, you know, little mom and pop operations, or the New York Times was still dismissing every form of alternative medicine as snake oil and so on. So that was the prevailing attitude in the mainstream, but we had a sense... New York, you know, it needs to have its own major center for holistic learning. There was a little yoga center here and a meditation Mm -hmm. center there and an ecology center there. But our goal was to really bring together a place that would bring in the finest presenters from all over the country or all over the world if we could access them. And to offer a really comprehensive set of programs. And yes, in health and well-being, in inner development and psychology, in world spiritual traditions, in the arts and creativity, in ecological and social change. So that was our goal. And I met another guy, his name is Walter Beebe. He had a background uh, as a lawyer and he knew about business, real estate, law, etc. Um, I had the knowledge, the know-how from the other places, Omega and, the, and Findhorn. So we were a good team. And so uh, I came down from Omega in March of, of 83. I figured it would take us nine months to launch it. And we did. We launched it. I'll never forget that date. It was, um, it was, it was a freezing, ice-cold January. It was a Friday the 13th. Mm. January, Friday the 13th, 1984, with all the Orwellian overtones that that has. In the city, they said it could never be done. So we launched it, but we were, it was immediately greeted with an enormous wave of mm. gratitude. People felt so glad that finally there was somewhere in New York that really could offer high-quality, substantive, rigorous, um, holistic learning. I I love it, Ralph. Uh, You described something, and I really identified with it because, like, um, Michael and I, my partner, who has now passed on, Mm -hmm. started New Dimensions in 1973. Mm -hmm. And I remember those first days we had a little shoebox and and a little little list where people could kind of sign their name yeah, and yeah. and people started coming to uh, this lecture series and you kind of described something very similar <laughs> you described this this little i think you if i remember correctly this little pink toy typewriter or yeah, something right. that you were you're tapping out yes. something on this little toy top yeah. typewriter and it was very much the same it was a shoestring yeah. budget to just get this launch but it was that 
idea whose time has come. Yeah, exactly. And it was your assignment to yeah. say yes to that's, it. That's right, yes. And, uh, you know, Walter Beebe and I had the right combination of talents. And, yeah, I would have to just, I remember writing that first letter of invitation to a faculty member. I had to shout down the stairs for Walter's teenage daughter, Kathy, can I borrow your little plastic typewriter <laughs> that she was learning to type on? <laughs> just, you know, just to type out the first letter of invitation. So that's what those of us who've been pioneers, you know, who really got this thing going 30, 40 years ago, or even 50 if you go all the way back to the early years of Aslan and Findhorn, the, the vision lived in our hearts, didn't it? Oh, I mean, oh. we knew what we wanted to do. We could feel this. there were new qualities of consciousness emerging. It was needed. It was being ignored by the mainstream. We had to create, in your case, a radio show. In my case, these holistic learning centers. And they've had a real impact. And, and they continue they to continue this day. They continue to. And, but people, you know, I think it's one of the reasons I did the book is I think it's helpful for people to have a sense of the history. Where did it all come from? How did it start? Why do you suppose that that's important? To have a sense of the history of it all? Well, I think, you know, a lot of people dismissed this, because it used to be called New Age and so on, kind of view as, as flaky, as not, as not really having any substantive intellectual or philosophical or historical grounding. So for me, it's been very important to say, no, this is not true. Of course, we, if we look at Tibet or Japan or India, we see in the East, of course, a magnificent, sophisticated uh, spiritual culture. But in the West, we had lost a lot of it. And it, to me, it's been important to say that a lot of these perspectives and ideas, these mystical practices, are an integral part of actually our Western cultural history, those of us who come from from that background. And that's why, you know, I, I'm not sure if you want to use it now or later, but that's why I've created this whole 20-year 20, 20 series of conferences, 20 years and counting now, on the lost spiritual history of the West. We call them esoteric quests. We just did one last June, an esoteric quest in the south of France, uh, troubadours, Cathars, Templars, and the Grail in medieval Languedoc. People don't realize there was a beautiful, sophisticated culture of love with the troubadours and of Gnostic Christianity, accepting the total equality of men and women, uh, accepting reincarnation, all in these beautiful fairy tale castles in the mm. in the south of France in the in the twelfth century. So, I'm interested in reclaiming that kind of history. For instance, we did another one on um, an esoteric quest for ancient Alexandria, Greco-Egyptian birthplace mm. of the Western mind, which is which we co-sponsor with the Library of Alexandria that has wow. been rebuilt. So these kinds of things, um, it shows that we there's a real heritage here. Yes. Many of the significant figures, from, like, for instance, Goethe, or going all the way back, Plato, you know, this mm -hmm. is, uh, the Renaissance was imbued with a Platonic thought, which had been lost for a thousand years. Exactly. So... It's important for me to, to say that we, we stand on a solid foundation here. There's nothing uh, marginal about it or uh, irrelevant. Nothing it's actually, that we have to apologize no, for. It's you an know, integral part of our, yes. of our culture. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to, to have some time for an extraordinary journey that you took. I just yeah. I could not take my eyes <laughs> off of the book when I read about yeah. your, your journey into Tibet. Yes. 
And uh, it came out of a commission that someone gave you when you were in India, mm. Dharamsala. Yes, that's at, right. Where the, that's the exiled home of the Dalai Lama. Yes, correct. So I, please tell us a bit of that story. Yeah, well, after the first five years of starting the Open Center, I was pretty fried. I'd poured my lifeblood into it. I felt I needed to replenish, so I took a trip around the world. Part of that involved spending a month in the Nechung Monastery in Dharamsala. And the Nechung Monastery is a working monastery. There are very few Westerners there, or there were when this is 25 years ago. And um, while it's a working monastery in the sense that they invoke Peha Gyalpo, the, the Nechung Chagram, the protective deity of Tibet. You would say the Nechung Oracle is the last surviving political oracle in the world. And the way it works is that a few times a year, the monks do an invocation at the Tibetan New Year when I was there. It's a five-day ritual. I was there. I would wake up in the morning in, the, in my little room, and I'd hear the, you know, the, the Tibetan monks chanting, that, you know, that very deep mm. bass chanting. I'd hear those trumpets being blasted, the cymbals crashing. By the time it got to the second or third day, it was taking on an increasingly shamanic nature. I just want to say yeah. for people, if you want to get kind of a little glimpse into that the movie Kundan yes, really shows yes. that oracle when he does uh, right. go into yeah. this this whole shamanic body yeah. and I'm not sure how accurate it is to the actual thing, but it gives you a flavor. But it gives you a sense because the climax of the five-day ritual is that a monk then who's serving as the vehicle for the oracle dresses as the protector. And, Which um, is very fearsome. Wears an enormous, fierce <laughs> protector, wears an enormous headdress that he'd have a very hard time keeping on his head if he wasn't in a state of trance. And then he speaks to the Kashag, the Tibetan parliament, and to the Dalai Lama himself. Um so I joined them. I asked if I could join them to meditate in the background for during the latter part of that ritual. And then at the end of month, that month, I was there. The senior monk came to me and said he'd heard I was planning to take the first flight of the year from Kathmandu into Lhasa and that they had some some material that they needed to get to their sister monastery that had been allowed to open in Lhasa but was watched very closely. So no Tibetan could do it, only a Westerner could do it. They'd been waiting for the right person. They felt it was me. Would I do it? So I, uh, I said, I just, I, you know, I've always loved the Tibetans and the Tibetan people and Tibetan culture since I was a child, really, when we knew little about them and it was more of a, just a dream. But I agreed to do it. But then the, this is 30 years since the flight of the Dalai Lama. This was 1989. So there were demonstrations in Lhasa. Tibetans were being killed. The Chinese communist authorities didn't want the world to know, so they expelled all foreigners. It looked like it was impossible to do. There was a big genocide oh, going yes. on at that oh, time. Oh, well, it's going to be going on and, for many and, decades yeah. in Tibet. And um, But then I met a guy, a Chinese-Canadian guy actually called Victor, who told me about a route into eastern Tibet last done in the 1920s by a man called Joseph Rock, who wrote a series of articles about it called Journey to the Land of the Yellow Lama in National Geographic. And he gave me a copy of that. And he said, why don't you try this route? So it's a long story. It's the longest individual chapter in the book. but We we won't have time for the whole story, but you... I mean, really, really snuck in there. I mean, you you were undercover. I mean, you were like some <laughs> ranger soldier or something. I mean, really, it was quite an amazing story. Well, it was story. an adventure, yes, to yes. cross those eastern Himalayas into the world of the campers, 
the the sort of Tibetan warrior culture or bandit culture that lives that has protected the eastern border of Tibet for centuries. These are guys, you know, they all wear cowboy hats. That all the men have really long hair. They carry swords. They're crack shots. They're some of the finest horsemen in Asia. They all have big earrings. In fact, they say a man without an earring will be reborn as a donkey. Mm-hmm. So I was sure to wear my <laughs> turquoise earring when I was with them. More about that in just one moment. I'm here with Ralph White. He's the author of the memoir, The Jeweled Highway, On the Quest for a Life of Meaning. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Ralph White, and he's the author of the memoir, The Jeweled Highway, On the Quest for a Life of Meaning. He's also the co-founder of the Open Center. And Ralph, you've been commissioned to carry something to Mm -hmm. this monastery in eastern Tibet. Mm. And you were you were successful. Yes, well, I I was able to. I, I don't specify for obvious reasons where where it went exactly. But yes, I was able to cross these wild mountains through the land of the campers, take the material that needed to be taken to a, a certain spot uh, and uh, where they said it would be carried on to uh, to Lhasa. So yes, I, that was a profound experience. And then, of course, it was happening at the time of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. So to get back to China and find that, the aftermath of that was a very profound experience, to say the least as well, textbook totalitarianism. So yes, that was a deep experience for me, and um, I'll never forget it. And that's exactly. why it's, uh, it's, it's actually the longest individual chapter in the book. Mm. Ralph, I wanted to ask you, things pop up at the same time like grasses, you know. Mm. Uh, so you've experienced a kind of um, blossoming of these learning centers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You you lived at Finhorn in the very early years of Finhorn. You, uh, you open center, of course, is one. You visited Esalen. There have been, you know, Brighton Bush mm-hmm. in Oregon. There have yeah. been lots of centers around. Yes. Uh, do you see something blossoming? Is there, is there a turning of the tide in some way for... Yeah a new view, a new consciousness? 
Well, it may be a slow turning, but it's definitely there. I mean, there's, yes, I mean, I write about the global network of holistic centers. We've been meeting for 30 years. I'm the sort of elder of that group now. And you mentioned many of those centers that are pretty well known here on the West Coast, but this is an international phenomenon. There are plenty of centers in Europe, in Australia, in New Zealand, you know, you name it. They're emerging everywhere. There's there, the aftermath of communism in Russia led to the the appearance of centers in uh, Eastern Europe and Russia. I know of some in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and actually, you know, this annual centers gathering that I've been attending for all these 30 years really now, the next meeting, ironically, in just two weeks' time, I'm, I'm really sorry I can't go there, it's going to be in China. China itself is going through, uh, it's like the 60s in China in some ways, there's a massive interest in the human potential movement because it remains a communist authoritarian world, it's nominally communist. So how all that will emerge will be a fascinating experience, but I'm told that people, the younger generation are not fulfilled with just the materialism in China, the economic growth, the pollution, the shopping malls, the designer brands, the younger people are looking for something significant. And so Carl Jung has been widely translated, you know, Waldorf schools. There was an article in the New Yorker about how Waldorf schools are proliferating all over China for people who want a more independent, creative education for their kids instead of rote memorization. You know, China, South Korea, and Japan have the highest rates of teen suicide. You know, the awful educational systems with memorization. So to me, the fact that there is this opening, it's more, should we say, the, the authorities find it, it's more comfortable to talk about it in psychological terms, in terms of human potential rather than spiritual per se but people uh, there's a book it just won the national book award by the new yorker correspondent evan osnos about china his years in china and he talks about the one of the chapters is called the spiritual void Hmm. people are looking for something just like we were in here in america or in britain 40 years ago and you found that in your travels to russia yeah absolutely glasnost happened and, and there was a that that soul of the Russian, that yeah. deep oh, spiritual Russia, soul what a place. is right there. Yes, absolutely. So there was a mass, of course, there's an ancient mystical tradition in Russia. The way of the pilgrim. It, it, it Russia exudes it. Look at the you know the legacy of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. I mean, Russia is a, one of the most soulful cultures I've ever encountered. Mm-hmm. So of course, after sixty years of communism, people were hungry to reconnect with their own traditions and to learn what they could from the West about how we in the West have created these centers, have created an alternative culture. Mm-hmm. And um, what? Uh, and now that the books and literature was available, what could they actually imbibe? You know, Ralph, you mentioned Waldorf schools, and I know that mm. you're a student of Rudolf Steiner, mm, who yes. we, most of us, when we think of Rudolf Steiner, we think of Waldorf yeah, school and exactly. Waldorf education. But um, can you say something about yeah. your love of this I, philosopher? Yes, I, I would be happy to. You know, the old line from the Bible, by their fruit shall you know them. Uh, look at Rudolf Steiner left without question the greatest holistic legacy of the 20th century. Today we know him through, as you said, the Waldorf schools, now the largest independent approach to education in the world, the biodynamic agriculture, the rebirth of organic agriculture in the 20th century, the Camp Hill villages started by his students for special needs children and adults all over the world. It goes on and on, the leaders in ethical banking. But Steiner himself, what for me, what took me into Steiner, 
is that he's the deepest, for my money, any one of the deepest of the 20th century, the deepest, he's an esoteric philosopher. He spent, he gave 6,000 lectures compiled into, he wrote over 20 books, but it's, they're all compiled into over 350 volumes. None of those lectures are the same. Between 1901 and 1924, he died in 1925, he gave this nonstop series of lectures all over Europe. And it, it, it's a beautiful esoteric treasure trove. To me, uh, Rudolf Steiner remains largely, for us in America, um, a still somewhat neglected spiritual genius. Um, you know, there's a Rudolf Steiner website, rsarchive.org. You can put any significant figure, whether it was Hypatia in ancient Alexandria, the, the woman philosopher who was a Neoplatonist and a mathematician, whether it was the alchemists of Bohemia of the 16th century. This man's extraordinary mind, you can put it in the search engine in RS Archive, and but he will not only know, be familiar with these figures, but he'll have the deepest insight into who they were. Do you have advice uh, for anybody when they're first looking into his work, some sort mm -hmm. of... Uh, way to enter it? I mean, everybody has their own personality, so they might be well, attracted yes. to one or another. But do you have a recommendation? Yes, well, my friend Robert McDermott, who was president of CI, California Institute of Integral Studies for 10 years, uh, he wrote a book or edited a book called uh, The New Essential Steiner, which gives people an overview with introductions to the massively comprehensive range of his topics because it is a bit daunting. He is such a massively expansive thinker that you don't know where to begin. So I think the new essential Steiner, I think uh, he, Robert has a new book out too on Steiner and his, I'm not sure the exact title, Steiner so and his So I'm going to say peers. your name again, Robert McDermott. McDermott, uh -huh. the new essential Steiner, or another classic book is the book of meditations, knowledge of higher worlds and its attainment. Where you, So it's not just an intellectual experience, you actually mm -hmm. have meditative contemplative practices because Steiner takes the view that we all have profound faculties, spiritual faculties that are slumbering within us, and we need to awaken them, and we need to do it through a conscious practice, a meditative practice, and also, of course, by reading. Steiner is literally mind-expanding because you, you get brand new thoughts, completely new thoughts that not in your wildest dreams did you ever imagine. So you have to stretch your mind to grasp them. So just reading Rudolf Steiner is a contemplative exercise. But that book, Knowledge of Higher Worlds, is filled with, or How to Know Higher Worlds, is filled with um, lots of meditative exercises on how to develop, the to awaken that slum, these slumbering capacities in us. So you still delve into reading his works. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love, I've been reading Rudolf Steiner for 30 years. <laughs> I love reading Rudolf Steiner. And you're finding new things oh, all the time? Oh, completely. There's massive areas of Rudolf Steiner <laughs> I've never even approached. I've never really, not, you know, living in a city, I've never really got into the biodynamics, yeah. for uh, instance, or the, or the anthroposophical yeah. medicine. He was a comprehensive genius. So I think it's a wonderful thing for Americans or whoever else is listening. Yeah. It's a, it's a, uh, it's just a treasure trove okay. awaiting our discovery. And yes, I, I really would like to encourage people to get into it. Now, Ralph, we've talked a, a bit about all your travels around the world. I mean, we've just, we've touched very lightly on a few of them, I yeah. must say. So, I mean, readers uh, and listeners need to pick up the book and just find out so many more stories about your travels. But I'm just wondering... Um, in, in your advice for the spiritual seeker today, um, 
do we need to travel to the far ends of the earth or, or can we find something in our own backyard? Do you have any advice? Yeah, I don't think, I just happen to be, you know, I'm a bit of a vagabond at heart and uh, I love always, I've always wanted to embrace the world. So I don't think everybody necessarily needs to do that. Um, I think some people it's their destiny or their predisposition to really be in one primary location and you can find the deepest of experiences people who are attracted to family life and so on they could find I don't think you necessarily have to travel I think everybody just has to follow their own inner instinct but yes I think we are living in a multicultural time you know I live in Queens in New York which is the most multicultural spot on the face of the earth and after being dismissed as an embarrassing borough for years Lonely Planet just pronounced Queens as the number one destination for visitors to America precisely because it is so multicultural. So, of course... And all these languages are oh, spoken yeah, there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. More yeah. languages in New York than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. So I think it is a great education. I've always felt that all of us who grow up in the relative privilege of the West, people should spend time in the so-called developing world just to get a sense of how most of humanity lives, how privileged we are, and how... Yes. And that we're all... Uh, ultimately, that same heart lives within each of us. Ralph, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Oh, my pleasure, Justine. I've really enjoyed it. I have too. I've been speaking with Ralph White. He's the co-founder of the Open Center in New York. He also leads um, something called Esoteric Quest. Um, there are conferences in Europe, and you might check out his, his um, contribution there. And you can do that by going to his website. Did I say that he's the author of The Jeweled Highway on the Quest for a Life of Meaning? And check out his website at ralphwhite.net. That's ralphwhite.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3557. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. <laughs>